Welcome to Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on WLPN. This week, Lumpen Radio chatted with the creator of the ingenious Folded Map Project, chewed over the links between art and money, and dove into the frenetic fever dreams of the 1960s. All this plus the Trump Diaries and much more, only on the Lumpen Week in Review for September 7, 2018. This is Hell spoke to Max Haven about how art is manipulated by money. Haven, author of Art After Money, Money After Art, discusses how the so-called creative economy is a sham and punctures the myth that art and capitalism are fundamentally at odds. This is Hell with Chuck Mertz airs every Sunday at 10 a.m. Art and money have had a long and sordid relationship, and arguably art and capitalism need each other to survive. So what can we do to challenge the system in an era of art after money and money after art? Here to tell us, organizer and educator Max Haven is author of Art After Money, Money After Art, Creative Strategies Against Financialization. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Max. It's great to be back. You write money and art as they exist under capitalism must be abolished along with that economic system. What is wrong with art under capitalism? What does capitalism do to art that makes art wrong? Well, I think there's two uh, aspects to that question or two answers that I give you. The first is that I think especially over the last 20 or 30 years of capitalism and it's what we call the financialized phase, where you know finance capital and speculative money has risen to prominence in the capitalist economy, art itself has become financialized. So now there are a lot of firms and a lot of companies and a lot of individuals who are very interested in using art as a speculative asset, something that you invest in to get a higher return later, with very little concern for its aesthetic value, for its contribution to culture and society. Um, so on the one hand, art, like everything else in our society, has been turned into sort of the plaything of the plutocrat. But I think in this book, I'm trying to say that there's a deeper problem here, too, which is that under capitalism, the fundamental sort of what we would talk about as a creative or imaginative impulse of our species has really been progressively reoriented towards the generation of profit and towards corporate power. So art, on the one hand, is like those expensive objects we see in big museums. Those have become financial assets, but at a much more profound level, even on the level of daily life for most of us who don't consider ourselves artists, uh, our artistic impulse and our artistic skills and talents and passions have also been commodified, financialized, and instrumentalized. So um, is that financialization of art new? Because I am certain that I'm going to get an email from somebody who says, this is no different than when the de Medici's, the Borgias, or the Catholic Church mm-hmm. were the biggest art patrons in the world. So how is the financialization of art anything new, anything different from what it was in the past? Hasn't it always reflected what the people who have the most money want? Yes, absolutely. As long as there's been a thing we call art, which is actually a very recent human invention as a, as a term. I mean, the creative impulse is, of course, been with us since uh, we evolved into what we now understand to be humans. But ever since there's been this distinct category that we call art, that usually we associate with sort of romantic men drinking themselves to death in Paris, that has always been a plaything of the ruling class. But what has changed is that the ruling class has changed. So, of course, in medieval 
and Renaissance Italy, as, as you mentioned, that ruling class was a very tight uh, uh, group of religious and economic and political elites who wanted to art to do certain things for them. Um, specifically, they wanted it to glorify their worldview. They wanted it to tell a story about how their, their rule over the rest of society was legitimate. And they wanted it to ornament their mansions and houses that they had bought with their sort of ill-begotten wealth. Well, that hasn't changed fundamentally. That is still what the ruling class today wants. But the ruling class is very different today than it was in Renaissance Italy. Today, the ruling class is globalized. They uh, make money not necessarily through sort of mercantilist mechanisms or through exploiting peasantry, although that is still part of the capitalist system. They increasingly make money through speculation and through extraction and through the exploitation of labor. Uh, and so this ruling class is much more global. It's much more cosmopolitan in its tastes and its desires. And what it wants from art is very different. They're not as interested in sort of conservative depictions of how wonderful the world is under their care. They're actually more interested in provocative art. They're interested in edgy art. They're interested in art that pushes boundaries. Because, in fact, that's what the ruling class today thinks they are doing. You know, the financiers of Wall Street or the city of London or Shanghai or Frankfurt, they believe that, like artists, they're bringing their creativity into the world and manifesting their will as, you know, the sort of image of the romantic artist we have. And, of course, the difference is that an artist, if they make some mistake, you get a kind of ugly canvas. When these capitalists make a mistake, you get global warming, nuclear war, and you know, reactionary authoritarian governments. Under neoliberalism, we have this celebration of the individual and this dismissal, if not derision, of anything that is a collective notion or a collective response to anything. How much mm. is the ruling class today uh, under neoliberalism, under financialization, under the state of capitalism that we are currently living in, how much is the ruling class today more individualized and not thinking in more of a collective nature and that because of neoliberalism and that leads to them making decisions that are different from their predecessors who were the economic elites of capitalism at their time? Now, yeah, that's a very good question. Um, I think to a very large extent today's ruling class is uh, defined by their access to money rather than, rather than as it was in the past, their family connections and their kind of class unity. Uh, and that leads to a number of deeply morbid systems within the capitalist system. One of them is that they don't often realize that um, one of the central contradictions of capitalism is that though in order to move forward, in order to accumulate wealth, in the hands of capitalists, capitalists must compete with one another. Uh, that is a fundamental feature of the system. At various times, they have to cooperate. And those times are typically when there's an economic crisis. And for instance, as J.P. Morgan did, you know, almost 100 years ago now, literally called together the biggest financiers in New York City and insisted that they all make a collective sacrifice for the good of their class, or else there would be a massive economic crisis, as there was a little later in the Great Depression, as you know, in the Great Crash that led to the Great Depression. Uh, but that if they didn't make the sacrifice together for their common good, the system would crash and the masses would rise up. Um, and that's kind of a part of the defense mechanism of capitalism. But today's capitalists are both so globalized and so individualist in their understanding, they can't even necessarily figure out how to take that kind of class leadership. And for the rest of us, that's both a good thing and a bad thing. It's a good 
thing, because if they can't take leadership and they can't cooperate, it would make it easier for social movement uh, of the non-ruling class to challenge their power and make a more egalitarian, equal, and peaceful society. Unfortunately, in the absence of massive social movements that could take advantage of this opportunity, what happens is you get individual capitalists and factions of capitalism, both international factions and within nations, fighting against each other. And as you might imagine, they're not necessarily paying the price for that fight. So all of the trade wars that we're seeing, all of the international saber-rattling and contests between Chinese capitalism and American capitalism and European capitalism and Russian capitalism, these, you know, threaten to escalate into actual warfare uh, and into very serious consequences, economically speaking, for everyone on the planet. So uh, capitalists increasingly have this very individualist view, which prevents them from actually realizing that the system is ultimately suicidal. Sports talk to artist Gonzalo Reyes now showing in Chicago at Roots Gallery. Reyes displayed such oddities as vintage Playboy interviews with the Sandinistas and 1950s American PsyOps manuals in an attempt to get at this most peculiar moment in time. Does he succeed? Find out with Bad at Sports every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Today uh, we are joined in the studio by Gonzalo Reyes Rodriguez, uh, who's got an upcoming uh, two-person show <laughs> at uh, Roots and Culture. Welcome to Bad at Sports Center. Thanks for having me, Gonzalo. Is there? How do you want your? How would you like to be billed on the show? Uh, what do you mean? I don't know. When when Brian dropped the Rodriguez on you, your face was like. Oh yeah, I mean, thank you for that. Um, <laughs> I, but that's what I, the yeah. gallery says. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that is my name. Um, <laughs> I just, we got uh, something right, guys. Yeah. yeah, you got it right. I'm just like, um, uh, I don't know. It, it's totally like what I want to be called, too, but it's like, oh, it's so long. You know? <laughs> I know. But. I was like, wow, all three names <laughs> coming out. No, come on. Yeah. It's like, be formal if you can be formal. Yeah. It's an occasion. Totally. So, yeah, what is the occasion? Yeah, what's the occasion? You got a, you got a show? Yeah. I'm, Are you an artist? <laughs> I, um, yes, and yes. Um, I am one of two artists in a two-person show at Roots and Culture, um, and the show opens on Friday. Right. It's you and Daryl D'Angelo Terrell. Yes. Another Correct. three-person. Ah, I was going to say, names. I see now. Yeah. I like this a trend for here. three names. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Ryan, you would, but we're lobbing off Peter. Lobbing off Peter. We're mm. calling you just Miller. Oh, that makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> oh, no. 
Um, so, two-person show. Um, I believe opening this Friday, uh, September 7th. Uh, for Because we can't get there yet, and we're all eager to know what's there. Walk us through the show. Like, what's What are we going to see? Yeah. Well, I can start off with... Um, and I'm, you know, I don't want to do any injustice to Daryl's work, but I will try to explain it the best that I can. <laughs> um, All apologies to Daryl. <laughs> well, you know, I feel like talking about another artist's work is, unless you're like super familiar with it, it's always going to be, you're going to miss some things or I can only interpret it the way I can interpret it, right? Um, that's that's what we do all the time right. on this show. Yeah, we're <laughs> just essentially like, here just to go do. For yeah, it. just go for it. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah so I I um, have not seen all of the work he's produced for the show, but I know part of it is going to be um, these letters um, slash prayers that he asked black mothers to write for their sons who are young, but for when they grow up, and he's. Um, blown them up um, to a size that I'm not sure, and we'll have those on display. And then what are you putting in the show? Um, <laughs> You're here. You can, you can, yeah. speak, you can, can speak to that. I can go on and on. No. Um, uh, I, I have a lot of work in the show that's like, um, it's really like structural. It's, it's all about basically um, the Sandinista National Liberation Front. Okay, <laughs> and how? But it, Gonzalo, don't you know that I am a Nicaraguan history you? major? No, I'm not oh. Nicaraguan. I just dated one for a long time. Oh, great! And I wrote a long paper. This about can be a good conversation. The Sandinistas, yeah. yeah, go tell us the real. Get into it. <clears throat> well, um, in a condensed version, it's based, a lot of the work is just how the term Sandinista shows up in popular culture a lot, and like helps to fill in gaps in between the history from like the early 80s to like the present and how we look at this time, this um, <clears throat> U.S. intervention in Latin America and how the images that come out of it are like fixed in time, but how they relate when we're looking at them from the present um, and like how they're viewed in flux. So it's like, I just had to Google this word, but it's like the synecdoche of like a larger placeholder that yeah. the Sandinistas stand in for. Yeah. And nice so term. <laughs> I really like I'm just, term. I'm really just trying hard today to guess Ryan's term before yes, we get it, to it. I like that one. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. Take a note. Take a note, Ryan. Next time. All right. So, so what how, what does what are the Sandinistas like? What are they holding in your work? And how does question, that you know. manifest? Um, well, for me, they hold this idea of like. Um, revolutionary figures, which is what they were. But then um, we don't think about the Sandinistas in the present when we think about um, things that are maybe happening right now, like um, mass immigration from Central America and how they're like inherently connected. Um, so it's like, how can <clears throat> this work kind of like fill that gap between like 30 years ago and these two things that I feel are very, very related. But for some reason through cultural amnesia, we can't tie them together. Hmm. Interesting, especially because Daniel Ortega has been so. Yeah, that that is that of, messing up your work. I mean, it's not messing it up. I think it's like doing this thing that's like annoying to me. Yes, but also like I know that I can't control meaning in my work, and this is like a very real example of how an event can change the way the work is perceived. It's, it's well, another so, chapter, another yeah. another, another <laughs> body of work that you can make. Yeah. 
Um, but what is what is the work that we actually yeah, see? Oh, the um, show? well, I have a couple of things. Um, the show opens with these photographs of a magazine spread from Ecuador, actually. Um, and it's a cinema magazine that um, in 1979 decides to cover um, all of the like contra things happening in Central America. So in El Salvador and Nicaragua. Um, and it does a really nice way of... <clears throat> It's, it's like images and text. It's a photograph of a magazine. And um, it kind of like is this perspective on something from a non-American perspective. It's like from an Ecuadorian one. And Ecuador, Ecuador at this when this was published, like the CIA had just meddled in their election. So it's like all tied, tied in. So it's like an exterior perspective on yeah. something that we have such a kind of insular understanding of in the States. Yeah. So they're like they're under – well – I suspect a lot of Americans might feel about Reagan the same way that Ecuadorians in the 70s felt about Reagan. Yeah. So there's photo-ish. Photo-ish. Discursive photography. (laughs) (laughs) I've never heard that one. Discursive photography. I'm full of like really good terms like that. Yeah, give us us some terms. Is there any video work? Uh, There's one like stop motion. I, I don't know how to describe it. I keep saying animation because it's like fast moving photographs well we happen to have an uh, animation is it, pers- a, is it a montage <laughs> um, of photographs yeah they're just like coming at you like a really mm. fast gif but a really long gif okay if that helps <laughs> yeah um that's just um <clears throat> these like recently declassified school of the americas documents that the cia put out to kind of like build up insurgency in central america um, which they're really intense. Um, and they're not, like, I don't want any, like, there's a lot of text in the show, and it's not meant to be read. It's just meant to be, like, looked at visually. Um, so I have them flashing at you. So it's, like, this over- overwhelming, like, amount of yeah. information. Mm-hmm. I'm picturing that stack of manila folders that Trump had <laughs> yes. on his desk. Right. <laughs> um, who had the photo of that at the Cultural Center uh, last spring. Well, you, you, there was a photo of, the, of Trump at his at the Oval Office that went around that was actually photoshopped because it's actually Obama's desk because Obama had oh all kinds God. of work, and Trump <laughs> when he was photographed had and like Trump's three actually- had like three pieces of paper on it. Oh wow! And so you know, I'm thinking of that like press thing that he did where he had like he just like tr- like brought out yeah, all blank these paper folders to but like look at all these things. Wait, someone had a what? You're saying someone had a photograph of this moment? There was, no, there was a photograph at the Cultural Center in the spring for a show that I can't... It was for the Architecture Biennial. And um, it was just a photograph of um, a desk with a stacks of manila folders with paper in them and then an American flag in the back. Right. But I don't remember who made that. A bind- It sounds like a Danny Giles installation. But it's not. I don't know. I don't know. Well, we're just, it, we're it, just, don't get us in yeah. trouble on the show. If you know who it is, gentle listener, hit us up on the Twitter yeah. and the yeah. Instagram. Give us a yeah. call. Yeah, call share, us. Share that out. In the studio. At us. So, so speaking of such things, if people wanted to see this exhibition, it yeah. opens on Friday, mm-hmm. Roots and Culture. Uh, what time's the reception? Uh, it's from six to nine. And then how long does the exhibition run? It runs till October 6th, so it's up for a month. All right, and people, of course, can find uh, gallery hours and information on the Roots and Culture website. Yeah. <laughs> about the squirrels of Bridgeport. I think what we need to focus on... Oh, oh, are you okay? Oh, my God. Kyle, sort through your mail. It's all junk. Just throw it out. No, you pick it up. 
It can't be strewn all over the entrance. It's a hazard. Last thing we need is another visit from the fire marshal. Last thing I need is less time to do all the crap around here. I got to do. You have no idea how much stuff. What the flip is that problem? Uh, John's identity got stolen a while back. Say what? Ooh, that's it. That's the show we're going to do about. English, please. On this episode, we're going to do an investigative report on identity theft. Every year, exactly 323 Americans get their identities took. Size matters investigates. Hang on, did you fact check that? That's the fact that I said the thing. If that figure is exact, then the entire country is a nation of identity thieves. A plausible dystopia indeed. Size matters investigates. I met up with the host of Radio Free Bridgeport, John Daly, to expose the truth about identity theft. Cool beers. This one's a Rhode Island Dirty mm. IPA. I wanted to try Hello, one. good sirs. We're recording an episode of Size Matters. I know. I can see that. What's the episode about? Identity theft and the thieves who steal them. I would like to keep that a private matter. And the not... jig is up. How long you been gallivanting around as other people? That, that is not what Who's I... staring in the meat suit? The what? This is good stuff. Keep going. Don't agamon. Inspl- explain yourself, imposter. Speak. Someone used my personal information to go on a shopping spree. I think he's lying. That sounds rehearsed Yeah, it does. Jess, what the... Ow! Hey, not cool. <laughs> then tell me who you is. My identity got stolen. I wasn't taken over by the body snatchers or the talented Mr. Ripley. Or the thing. The what? what? The 1982 John Carpenter classic or the 1930s classic. So wait, someone stole your credit card. Credit cards, PIN, social security uh, number, all that kind of stuff. Uh, that's kind of boring. I can't do a whole show on that. Don't look at me. I think your concept of identity theft is hilarious. <laughs> yeah, I totally see that now. That's good producing, Jess. Yeah, I'm great. Kyle, just be glad you're incapable of having your identity stolen. How so? No address, no records. Well, what about all the mail? That's right. What? You are on the grid. It's all junk. Credit card offers and social security, what have you. Uh, hang on. Credit card offers? Yeah. That means you have credit. Wait a sec. How many credit cards do you have? I ain't never had one. I'm checking here on the net to see if you have anything open in your name. Oh, yeah. Just my suitcase. Calm down, down I can't Kyle. use my suitcase. I'm using your suitcase because it's what I got to do. Kyle, you're freaking okay. out. You need okay. to relax. I've never okay. seen him okay. so distraught. John, how long has this guy been using uh, Kyle's info? About 30 years. <laughs> Just hold on. Let's see where in Scottsdale, Arizona, this guy lives. Wow. That is a nice piece of property. What? Property? Gets worse. You paid for med school. What? You gotta be Kyle, kidding me. don't worry. We're what? gonna kill this middle finger. Yeah, I don't know about that, but we're gonna confront them. I gotta go find him. Someone buy me a plane ticket. I made my way to Scottsdale, Arizona, where I met up with a man going by the name of Kyle Seismankowski. We agreed to meet up in an industrial park outside of... Oh, crud. The battery on the portable recorder is about to die. I'll talk fast. We agreed to meet up... Alive. Boy, what a trip. What a great time I had. You end up using the lie? The what? Uh, so is that guy in prison or what? Actually, this jerk turned out to be one of the coolest people I've ever met in my whole life. Say what? Yeah, he's got a great taste in clothes, cars, and this house is so big, I learned a new word to describe it. Palatial. This is the man who stole your information? Not at all. Turns out his name is also Kyle Seismankowski, and he was also born on September 29th, 1946 in Chicago. Well, that's because he ripped you off. No, it turns out it's just a coincidence. Kyle, for years he's been using your credit to establish himself in society while you've been stuck squatting and mooching. Not entirely. No, actually, completely. 
Now, it just so happens that we have identical Social Security numbers. The only difference is he actually has a Social Security card and a birth certificate. You don't? Nope. My dad just wrote all my information down on an index card and told me not to lose it. I gotta go and pack. Excuse me, guys. Wait. I'm confused. If Kyle Seismankowski of Scottsdale, Arizona has proof of who he is... Then who is our Kyle Seismankowski? Size Matters Investigates? This week on the Trump Diaries. Trump is denying passports to citizens. Trump crosses another line in attacking Jeff Sessions. Michael Cohen trying to buy the National Enquirer's archive. A man threatens the Boston Globe. And Bob Woodward throws a grenade into the White House. These are the Trump Diaries. Day 589, August 31st. The Trump administration has been denying passports to U.S. citizens, specifically Hispanics in South Texas. Some passport applicants with U.S. birth certificates are being held at immigration detention centers and entered into deportation proceedings, while others have had their passports revoked while trying to re-enter the United States. Most of the people targeted were born by Texas midwives who have been accused of faking birth certificates. Trump admitted he wanted to fire Robert Mueller. I am very excited about the person who will be taking the place of Don McGahn as White House counsel. I like Don, but he was not responsible for me not firing Bob Mueller or Jeff Sessions. So much fake reporting and fake news. Trump and Michael Cohen tried to buy all the damaging information that the National Enquirer had about Trump dating all the way back to the 1980s. Quote, it's all the stuff, all the stuff, because you never know, Cohen says on a tape that was leaked to prosecutors. American Media Incorporated Chairman and CEO David Hecker has been cooperating with special counsel investigators for several months now. Trump said his administration did a fantastic job in Puerto Rico one day after it was revealed the official death toll was 474 times higher than the administration had reported. Trump also lied and claimed that Puerto Rico's electric grid was down before that storm. Trump canceled pay raises for almost 2 million civilian federal employees, claiming that the United States could not afford them. Quote, we must put our nation on a physically sustainable course. A 2% pay increase was scheduled to take effect in January. Trump has repeatedly claimed the USA has the strongest economy ever and was recently slapped back by a federal judge on collective bargaining for federal employees. In Arizona, Representative Martha McSally easily defeated former Sheriff Joe Arapaio and Kelly Ward in a primary there. In Florida, a Trump-backed Republican and a Bernie Sanders-backed Democrat will meet. Representative Ron DeSantis won the Republican nomination for government and immediately attacked rival Andrew Gillum, saying he would monkey this up if elected. He also said Gillum was extremely articulate. Gillum is black. DeSantis' comments were condemned, even on Fox News. Day 590, September 1st. Trump is unwilling to make any concessions to Canada at all on NAFTA, telling reporters that negotiations we've done totally on our terms. Those remarks were made off the record of Bloomberg reporters, but they were subsequently reported by the Toronto Star. Trump had told Bloomberg he wouldn't admit this publicly because, quote, it's going to be so insulting they're not going to be able to make a deal. Trump later tweeted after the Star reported those comments that his rights had been blatantly violated due to the leaking of his off-the-record comments about Canada. He then added, quote, at least Canada knows where I stand. There's currently no deal with Canada on NAFTA. Roger Stone expects Robert Mueller to indict him, telling the Guardian expects Mueller's to frame me for some non-existent crime to silence me and pressure me to testify against the president. 
Stone spoke extensively with WikiLeaks and the Russian hackers Guccifer 2.0, revealed to be part of the Russian intelligence services during the 2016 election campaign. Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos is trying to narrow the definition of campus sexual harassment, which would reduce school liabilities and raise the burden of proof on assault victims. The new rules would also establish a higher legal standard to determine whether schools improperly address those complaints. Trump claimed China hacked Hillary Clinton's emails during the 2016 presidential campaign. Quote, Hillary Clinton's emails, many of which are classified information, got hacked by China. Next move better be by FBI and DOJ or after all of their other missteps, Comey, McCabe, Strzok, Page, or FISA dirty dossier, except or their credibility will be forever gone. The FBI immediately refuted Trump's claims. Day 591, September 2nd. The FBI attempted without success to get Russian oligarch Oleg V. Deripaska to flip. Deripaska has been excused of extortion, bribery, and murder, and served as a conduit between the Kremlin and Paul Manafort. The attempt to flip Deripaska was part of a broader clandestine effort to gauge the possibility of gaining cooperation from some of Russia's richest men, nearly all of whom depend on President Putin to maintain their wealth. None cooperated. The Justice Department unexpectedly sided with a group of Asian Americans rejected by Harvard who say the university has systematically discriminated against them. In July, Education and Justice said that Trump was abandoning Obama-era policies that called on universities to consider race as a factor when trying to diversify their campuses. And a California man threatened to shoot Boston Globe employees in the head for their coordinated editorial response to Trump's attacks in the news media. According to a phone recording, the 68-year-old Adidas Robert Chain called the paper and said, quote, you're the enemy of the people and we're going to kill every one of you. Chain owned several guns and had recently purchased a small caliber rifle. Day 592, September 3rd. Trump attacked Jeff Sessions, claiming that criminal charges brought against two Republican congressmen ahead of midterm elections would impact the Republican Party. Quote, two long-running Obama-era investigations of two very popular Republican congressmen were brought to a well-publicized charge just ahead of the midterms by the Jeff Sessions Justice Department. Two easy wins now in doubt because there's not enough time. Good job, Jeff. The two men Trump is referring to, Duncan Hunter and Chris Collins, were indicted by grand juries on charges of money laundering and insider trading. Neither prosecution began in the Obama era. Both men were early supporters of Trump. Senator Ben Sass responded to Trump saying, quote, the United States is not some banana republic with a two-tiered system of justice, one for the majority and one for the minority. These two men have been charged with crimes because of evidence, not because of who the president was. Trump attacked the top union leader on Labor Day. Trump tweeted that AFL-CIO President Richard Trumka, quote, represented his union poorly on television. It is easy to see why unions are doing so poorly. A dem. Trump had appeared on Fox News and criticized Trump, saying, quote, the things that he's done to hurt workers outpace what he's done to help workers. In related news, Trump is rolling back worker safety regulations. The rollbacks affect underground mine safety inspections, offshore oil rigs, meat processing plants, and many others. The Interior Department is seeking rollback regulations for offshore oil rigs that were put in place after the 2010 Deepwater Horizon disaster. And the father of Molly Tibbetts, the Iowa College student whose body was found last month, asked in an open letter that others not, quote, callously distort and corrupt her death to promote a political agenda. Do not appropriate Molly's soul in advancing views she believed were profoundly racist. That response followed a column in the Des Moines Register in which Trump's eldest son blamed Democrats for Tibbetts' death. Trump Jr. wrote, quote, the reaction from some Democrats and others in the left to the murder of Molly Tibbetts is as despicable as it is revealing. Unfortunately, Molly was not the first casualty of the left's love for open borders. The radical policies of the Democrats have left a trail of human wreckage in pursuit of their open borders dream. Day 593, September 4th. 
A contentious hearing to confirm Brett Kavanaugh on the Supreme Court began with a bang. Democrats moved angrily to adjourn, consider 43,000 newly released documents dumped just on Monday night, that was Labor Day, while thousands of protesters screamed in support. Senator John Cornyn, Republican of Texas, called it mob rule. The head of the House Judiciary Committee, Chuck Grassley, said he would not adjourn. Axios is reporting that Omarosa Mangold recorded nearly every conversation she had while working in the White House, including conversations she had with all of the Trumps, in her own words. She did so using her personal cell phone. The author of the Steele dossier told the Justice Department that Russian intelligence believes they have Trump over a barrel. That is according to a new well-sourced report from the Associated Press. Russian sources have consistently said they have damaging information on Trump. Steve Bannon was pulled off the New Yorker Festival after a string of high-profile defections and protests. The alt-right provocateur called the decision gutless. Editor David Remnick said in a statement that staffers had also complained about Bannon's presence. Day 594, September 5th. An explosive new book by Bob Woodward paints the White House as an administration in collapse. Woodward described Trump as an emotionally overwrought, mercurial, and unpredictable leader. He also described how aides removed papers from his desk to keep him from signing them in an administrative coup d'etat, which Woodward notes is to, quote, protect the country. Woodward gives several examples of Trump's behavior. Trump apparently ordered the U.S. to withdraw from a trade agreement with South Korea. He ordered Defense Secretary Jim Mattis to assassinate Syrian dictator Bashar al-Assad. He then sat for a mock interrogation with his lawyers and exploded, calling the Mueller investigation a goddamn hoax at the start of an hour-long rant. Trump also reportedly called the speech in which he belatedly called the white supremacist in Charlottesville, Virginia, culpable his biggest mistake. Arizona's governor appointed former Senator John Kill to fill the seat left open by John McCain. The move elevates a well-liked former Republican lawmaker who is acceptable to both McCain's admirers and Trump. Kill has been shepherding Brett Kavanaugh through his Supreme Court confirmation process. Robert Miller will accept some written answers from Trump and a break from the past. Mueller's investigation is also continuing, despite Trump's claims the investigation should have wrapped up. Trump was told by lawyers he'd, quote, be in an orange jumpsuit if he sat for questioning. New polling shows that 60% of Americans disapprove of Trump's job performance. Just 36% approve of Trump, making him the least popular president since the 1940s. Just 37% of Americans think the Senate should be confirming Brett Kavanaugh. 50% of Americans think Congress instead should begin impeachment proceedings. These are the Trump Diaries. Really happy to have an old friend of mine on the show. This is Tanika Lewis Johnson. What's up, Tanika? Hi. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for that lovely, lovely intro. You're you're very welcome. Um, I want to before we talk about the the folded map project. Um, there are so many things going on in your community in Inglewood. Um, everybody tries to, or there was a time when that was the hot topic of every news program about the crime in Inglewood and Inglewood is this and Inglewood is bad. And Inglewood has made an amazing transformation. What do you attribute that to? And how much of that transformation would you contend is people powered as opposed to city powered? Yeah, it's, 
all people power. Um, even using kind of my um, newfound public recognition, that's the result of residents of Inglewood uh, coming together to work together and use our own individual talents as assets to kind of amplify all of these issues that we're working to resolve in Inglewood together. And I definitely would not have gotten to this point with my photography had it not been for, one, not only my friends and Inglewood community members uh, embracing my art as a way to approach the social justice issues that we are trying to combat and change, um, but also we have created a community in Inglewood through organizations like RAGE, Resident Association of Greater Inglewood, where people who live in Inglewood are connected to Inglewood, still have family in Inglewood, go to church or work in Inglewood, can meet and figure out what strategies we want to take as concerned residents to tackle whatever issue. And if you are an artist, you can do it that way. If you are someone interested in real estate, you can be a part of the group that's hosting um, Buy the Block workshop. If you are a homeowner who purchased one of the dollar vacant lots, you can help people uh, learn how you did that and how to beautify your neighborhood. It's just we are creating a lot of different ways for concerned residents to be involved with um, positive change in Inglewood. And, and my story is just one of, of many. And it's one that includes art, which really hasn't been done recently. So, yeah, I would definitely say it, it's all people-powered. It's our effort to work with um, other organizations in Inglewood as well as the police. You know, there are a group of residents who are part of the Public Safety Task Force. I'm one of them. And we have built a relationship with the 7th District uh, community police officers. And so that has helped kind of bridge that gap in community and police relationships, even though it's a, a lot of more work to be done, especially the beat officers. But um, it is definitely people-powered. When you started taking these pictures i think i want to say i remember you <clears throat> i bumped into you uh and and i saw a camera around your neck i'm like what are you doing you're like man i'm taking pictures i'm like word to take pictures now um what and i know you went to columbia uh and 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 that was your field of study but what sparked that and you know actually to tell the truth i knew you were taking pictures way back in the day um yeah but, but i stopped that's probably <laughs> yeah, I'm like you're still doing that. What um, what was your motivation behind uh, uh your your pursuing photography professionally? What was it that you wanted to do, um, and 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 how did you get into this field of of study? Um, well, actually, it was just you know the artist in me that was 
passionate about photography, and that kind of carried over into me wondering if I wanted to pursue it professionally. And so I did, you know, a short stint as, you know, a photographer for hire, which I did love, um, but it was not as fulfilling as the other work I was doing just to fulfill my artistic self, which was street photography and the photography of my home neighborhood. And so that kind of, you know, took over, like hugely took over to the point where, um, you know, my community members kind of started knowing me as, you know, the the girl that takes the pictures. She she worked with Ray and she takes the pictures. And so once they started seeing my work, they actually were the ones to tell me, you know, these are the images that we're trying to show people that Inglewood is and you have them and you haven't been sharing them. Um, so the alignment with community work and photography kind of really took took over and um I was able to see how my passion of the simple artistic passion of documenting black people in Chicago, specifically uh, people of color in my community of Inglewood, um, was useful and able to help uplift work that's being done. Um, so once I kind of figured that out and was a part of that, it was really just unlocked a whole nother creative world for me, something that pursuing it as a professional photographer for hire just did not provide me personally. We're with Tanika Lewis-Johnson from the Folded Map Project and uh, the creator of the Folded Map Project, also an amazing photographer. Um, let's talk about Folded Map, okay? I know that I have always been curious about a person that shared the same number address with me. I never thought to put that into finding out who that person was. What sparked the Folded Map Project? Um, well, what sparked it, uh, it's, it's been a lifelong obsession of mine because, you know, I was living in Inglewood when I went to Lane Tech, and I basically had to get introduced to a whole new neighborhood that uh, that was just new to me, and I had to make that commute every day. So between going to high school and then on the weekends going to the other uh, writing program that I was in, Young Chicago Authors in Humble Park slash Wicker Park, um, I just started seeing a lot of new neighborhoods, and the only thing that was familiar to me in these neighborhoods were the streets. I was like, oh, these are the same streets. I surprisingly know where to go, you know? So I, that really stuck with me, and what stuck with me more was just the fact that the irony or coincidence that, you know, it was mathematically distributed on Chicago's map 
and it was a clear point and boundary of the difference of how these streets look in the different neighborhoods. And so that just stuck out to me so much that you could literally, like, fold the map and see at the zero point, which is downtown, and see completely two different Chicago on the same street. And so that just stuck with me for a while. It took, you know, years for it to, like, crystallize into a project uh, into folded maps today. But once I started doing community work and after the success that uh, Inglewood had with the Inglewood Rising Billboard campaign, I was like, you know what, it's, it's time for me to get these obsessions out of my head with the map and race and inequity and do it now, you know. And so that's really where it came from. And while I started doing folded maps, that's when I started including residents and having them meet because that part of it was purely born out of actually doing the project. I did not set out to interview residents and have them meet until I actually started working on the project and I was like, okay, it's naturally moving in this direction. So I just let it happen. The Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. Lumpen Week in Review is overseen by Logan Bay, produced and engineered by Jamie Trecker. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. Lumpen Radio Sting by Dan Jugal. Voiceovers by Ed Marzuski, Jamie Trecker, and Shanna Van Volt. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Lumpen Radio broadcasts on 105.5 FM in the Chicago area and worldwide via lumpenradio.com.